In Boston, the mastermind of the Varsity Blues College admission scheme has been sentenced to three and a half years in prison for helping dozens of wealthy clients get their kids into top-tier schools by using bribes, phony test scores, and fake resumes. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, January 4th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a faction of hard-right Republicans is still standing in the way of Kevin McCarthy becoming House Speaker. There's really not a whole lot of policy positions that they're advocating. It's more like blowing stuff up uh, just so you can blow stuff up. More on how the small pack of legislators became so influential. And what's wrong with Tesla? Its stock market value took a tumble last year. It still dominates the U.S. electric vehicle market, but between economic headwinds, determined competitors, it's not a great kickoff. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The House of Representatives is still without a speaker. Frontrunner Kevin McCarthy appears to be headed for a defeat for sixth ballot. NPR's Lexi Chapitel reports a path forward is unclear and the process could drag on. McCarthy's 20 opponents within the Republican Party have thrown their support behind Florida Representative Byron Donalds. Donalds told reporters he wasn't looking to be speaker, but he supports the changes to House rules that McCarthy holdouts have been calling for. What I want as a speaker of the House is going to actually be able to use every tool in this in this building to accomplish the will of the American people and, and have uh, trust and, and, and definite uh, belief that we're going to get that work done. Donalds did not say McCarthy should drop out of the race, but it's not clear how long McCarthy's support can withstand the stalemate. Lexi Chapital, NPR News, The Capitol. Much of California is facing potentially brutal conditions from a powerful storm system tonight through tomorrow morning. The National Weather Service warned of rapid rises in rivers and creeks, widespread flooding and possibly landslides. Here's meteorologist Andrew Orison. Another three to six inches of rain, and this will actually even include uh, uh, some of the cities like uh, the San Francisco Bay Area on down towards Monterey, for example. Uh, and some of the higher elevations, the coastal ranges and some of the upslope areas, uh, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, where they'll be below uh, the snow line. We are expecting perhaps as much as uh, six to eight inches. Nearly all of northern and central California are under flood alerts and high wind warnings. The World Health Organization is expressing concern about a surge of COVID-19 cases in China. NPR's Jason Bobian reports the WHO is also worried that China is undercounting the number of infections and downplaying the current health crisis. COVID has been spreading rapidly in China after the country abandoned its zero COVID policy. But since China lifted those strict lockdown measures last month, the WHO says Beijing hasn't been fully reporting the number of COVID infections, hospitalizations, or deaths. Some experts predict that as many as 1.7 million people in China could die of COVID-19 by the end of April as the disease rips through communities with little immunity to the virus. Many people lack natural exposure to COVID and vaccination rates among the elderly remain relatively low. Officials with the WHO say China has sufficient stockpiles of vaccines. The problem, they say, is that those vaccines still haven't gotten to some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Jason Bobian, NPR News. U.S. stocks have closed higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gaining 133 points, ending the day at 33,269. The S&P 500 up three quarters of a percent. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The man at the center of the nationwide college admissions cheating scandal has been sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison. Rick Singer appeared in Boston federal court this afternoon. Prosecutors had been seeking six years behind bars for Singer. For more than a decade, Singer took in $25 million in payments from wealthy parents and paid bribes to get their kids into some of the nation's most elite colleges and universities. He pleaded guilty to racketeering and money laundering and then cooperated with federal investigators. The case led to dozens of guilty pleas and convictions among parents of the college students. It's a busy day on Beacon Hill in Boston today. Governor Charlie Baker is getting set to leave office for his final time next hour. And his successor, Maura Healy, is preparing to be sworn in tomorrow. WBR Steve Brown says the two met briefly this afternoon. Healy and her running mate Kim Driscoll met with Baker and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito to accept some tokens that represent the office, including a key, two gavels, a Bible, and a book of laws. Afterwards, Healy said she appreciated being part of the exchange, which is a long-running tradition. We respect those traditions and the continuity of government and democracy. Massachusetts home to the oldest living constitution in the in the world. Healy said she's grateful to the voters of Massachusetts who elected her and she's excited to assume her new role. She'll be sworn in tomorrow at noon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Again at 5 o'clock, former Governor Baker, or soon-to-be former Governor Baker, is scheduled to begin the traditional lone walk from the governor's office out of the State House. With the ceremonies underway there today, there's some parking restrictions in place on Beacon Hill. There's no parking on Beacon Street from Spruce Street to Park Street until 7 tonight. State senators and representatives have been sworn in for the new legislative session that got underway today. Democratic House Speaker Ron Mariano laid out some of his top priorities. The full attention of the House will be directed at examining ways to further support our vital early education and care workforce. Mariano also named rising health care costs, public transit, and affordable housing as key priorities. In the Senate, President Karen Spilka said she wants to make community college free in Massachusetts. Community college students are often working parents, recent immigrants, and those from low-income backgrounds. They are the very people we picture when we think of the words American dream. Spilka will be serving her third term as Senate President. Mariano will be in his second full term as Speaker of the House. In the Boston area, should be drizzly through the next several hours. Rain ahead tonight, some gusty winds, lows about 40. Tomorrow should be cloudy once again, showers possible. Button up late tomorrow afternoon, could fall to about 35 degrees. And then for Friday, not much brighter, cloudy and rainy, only reaching the 40s tops. Sunshine should return, though, over the weekend. 46 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A powerful storm is battering large swaths of California today. It's bringing heavy rains and high winds to some areas already saturated by multiple storms in recent weeks. The National Weather Service has sent out dire warnings that flooding, power outages, and mudslides are possible. NPR's Eric Westervelt is tracking the storm from the San Francisco Bay Area. And Eric, I've been looking at the Weather Service's satellite images of this huge storm, and they look really ominous. What's the latest? 
Yeah, this is a big storm, and you know the rain has started to hit parts of northern and southern California. But they're saying the worst of the storm, this massive band of moisture known as an atmospheric river, is going to get more intense later this evening and into Thursday morning. The Weather Service wanted tweeted out, you know, those asking where's the storm, it's still coming. And they noted that these blue dots in the giant image uh, of the swirling storm you mentioned are are lightning flashes. The governor's office today said the state's likely facing uh, the most challenging series of storms it's seen in the last five years. So, Juana, people are kind of holding their breath right now, hoping for the best as more intense rain and wind are starting to hit the state. And California Governor Gavin Newsom has already declared a preemptive state of emergency, and a few communities have also already ordered evacuations ahead of the storm. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, a handful of areas did that, including Watsonville in Santa Cruz County, south of San Francisco. The city issued some mandatory evacuations for areas of the city that are prone to flooding, that usually get flooding, and, you know, to try to get vulnerable residents, the elderly, to safety. They've opened up an evacuation center. Uh, And that's really because a similar weather system moved through the state over the New Year's holiday weekend, causing some dangerous flooding to both homes and businesses in some areas, including parts of San Francisco, Sacramento, and Watsonville. And one of the big fear really is that the ground is just, you know, oversaturated from all these storms. And this is the third since Christmas weekend. And this new one combined with strong winds could cause some serious damage. I talked with Allison Bridger. She's a meteorologist and climate scientist at San Jose State University. So it's a very strong storm, plus a juicy plume of moisture in the atmospheric river gives us the possibility of quite a lot of rain which means all the new rainwater is is not going to sink in as well. It's going to run off. And so you're going to have more localized flooding, not to mention trees coming down, mudslides. The good news, Juan, is cities have had a few days to prepare for this, have been handing out lots of sandbags, putting up barriers in places that flood, activating their emergency plans, and warning people, hey, stay off the roads uh, if you can, especially in these places that have seen some recent wildfires, and so they're more prone to mudslides and, and flooding. The irony, though, is that drought-parched California really needs rain, right? Yeah, desperately. I mean, the past three years have been the state's driest on record, and one storm won't get us out of the drought problem. Many of California's largest and most important reservoirs are still far below their historical averages. So I would say Californians are having a bit of a love-hate relationship with this storm. As one uh, meteorologist put it to me today, this rain is really, really good right up until the moment, you know, we're knee-deep in flood water. Another good thing I'll mention briefly, these storms have been incredible for the snowpack in California, which is a major source of both drinking and farming water. The snowpack in the Sierra Mountains is off to its best start in 40 years. Briefly before I let you go, Eric, I understand there are even more storms on the way in the coming days. Yeah, Saturday into Sunday, there's yet another storm coming. It does not look to be nearly as powerful as this one, Juana, but again, more rain in a saturated ground. The worry is, you know, storm after storm after storm is going to start to really uh, take a toll. NPR's Eric Westervelt in Berkeley, California. Eric, thanks and stay safe. You're welcome. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade back in June, the Biden administration has been trying to protect access to abortion. Now, an abortion pill called Mifepristone could become easier to obtain. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to tell us more. Hey there, Sydney. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. So let's talk about what this pill is. This is not a new one. This has been around for a while, right? 
Right. Mifeprestone has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for more than two decades. It stops a hormone needed to maintain a pregnancy in the first trimester, and it's usually taken around 24 hours before a second pill, which causes the uterus to expel the pregnancy tissue. Doctors also use both pills during miscarriages to speed things along and minimize infection risk. Okay, so it's been around, but it has been hard to get in the past. How might access be about to get easier? Yeah, for years, um, it could only be dispensed in person by clinics certified to do so. So patients couldn't just get a prescription and fill it at the drugstore. They had to make an extra trip to take a pill in front of someone. And retail chains were specifically barred from dispensing it. And why? Why so many rules? So the short answer is safety. Drugs with certain safety issues have extra rules around them to control where they go. The long answer, if you ask some advocates, is politics. Medical societies have long said the restrictions weren't clinically necessary. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, for instance, says the drug is safe and effective and requiring it to be dispensed in person doesn't do anything to improve safety. It just adds hurdles. For what it's worth, the Food and Drug Administration suspended the in-person rule during most of the pandemic. So now, in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the agency is making more a more permanent rule change. Okay. So including, as we mentioned, dropping the in-person mm-hmm. requirement for accessing the pill. What else is changing? That's right. And now those big pharmacy chains aren't barred from carrying and filling prescriptions for mifepristone anymore. So it could be available at local drugstores and retail pharmacy chains, not to mention via telehealth going forward. The pharmacies would need to meet certain requirements and receive special certification before being allowed to fill those prescriptions. And to be clear, patients still need a prescription for these pills. They're not going to be available over the counter. Medical societies do say it's a step forward. So what does this mean practically? If I'm a patient, if I want to get this abortion pill, can I walk into my local CVS or Walgreens right away and get it? You can't uh, yet. So for starters, no one is required to carry these pills under the new rule. So they can choose not to seek the certification required to carry and fill these prescriptions. Uh, I reached out to CVS and Walgreens and both told me they were reviewing the new FDA changes. CVS told me it was looking at requirements in states that don't already restrict these drugs for medication abortion. Right. Well, speaking of states, I was wondering, Mm -hmm. because we now have quite a few states with laws on their books restricting abortion. So how does that Mm -hmm. come into play? So the Guttmacher Institute tracks state laws and policies surrounding abortion, including medication abortion, and it says 29 states specifically require physicians to administer medication abortion, so not just any clinician. And 18 of those states effectively ban the pill's use in telemedicine by requiring the physician to be in the room when a patient takes this pill. Two states, Indiana and Texas, outright banned medication abortion after a certain point in pregnancy. So this doesn't make abortion accessible everywhere in the country, and it it doesn't change things immediately. It will take time to see how it plays out. All right. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin, thank you. You bet. Now that it's 2023, we are one year closer to a handful of important climate goals. 2030 is the deadline for the U.S. to cut its greenhouse gas emissions in half, and 2050 is the global deadline to get to zero emissions. But those deadlines can feel so distant. Most of us are focused on today, tomorrow, maybe next year. As part of our series, Finding Time, Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk has more. 
This human relationship to time, our focus on the present, is one reason that a lot of experts will tell you that climate change is a tricky problem. Anthony Lizowitz is the director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. I consider climate change the policy problem from hell because you almost couldn't design a worse fit for our underlying psychology or our institutions of decision making. 2030 or 2050, it's too far in the future. You and I aren't thinking that far out, and neither are most of our elected leaders. The president gets elected every four years, members of the Senate get elected every six years, and members of the House get elected every two years. So they tend to operate on a much shorter time cycle than this problem, climate change, which is unfolding over decades. But do not despair. This is a problem, yes. But it does not mean that humans or human societies are somehow incapable of reducing greenhouse gas emissions or protecting people from the effects of a hotter Earth. Jennifer Jaquette is an environmental scientist at New York University. We do all sorts of things that we're hardwired against. Scuba diving, sitting at desks, typing on computers, saving for retirement. We do all sorts of things that we weren't evolved to do. And why is it that we choose to focus on these evolutionary quirks for why we can't solve climate change? Jaquette and Lizowitz both say the key is to turn this weakness into a strength, reframe the future problem as a present one, and find solutions that aren't always obvious at first glance. For example, says Lizowitz, climate-driven disasters are getting more common. These are real, and these are affecting Americans all across the country in incredibly powerful and visceral ways. That is obviously bad. But it also brings climate change into the present. It makes it a right-now problem instead of a next-decade problem. And there are also ways to make the benefits of addressing climate change feel more immediate. Jaquette says some of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act are good examples. If you will buy an electric car, we will give you a kickback. If you install solar panels on your house, we will make that profitable. They're trying to speed up the sort of benefits of cooperation. Because cooperation is the only way to really address climate change at scale. That means individual people doing things like driving electric cars, sure. But the big payoff will come from people who demand, right now, that the leaders of government and companies cut emissions. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a look back at athletic retailer East Bay. The company's catalogs used to feature the hottest new shoes and jerseys, but now East Bay has closed its doors. On Wall Street, the first gains of the new year, the Dow rose four-tenths of a percent, 133 points, to finish the session at 33,270. S&P grew by three-quarters of a percent for ending the day at 38.53, and the Nasdaq gained nearly that much, rising about seven-tenths of a percent to close at 10,459. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. A software company with significant presence in Burlington and Cambridge is cutting 10 percent of 
its global workforce. San Francisco-based Salesforce said today the cuts will result in the loss of about 8,000 jobs worldwide and the closure of some offices. It has not said what the effect the cuts will be in Massachusetts. The company's chief executive told employees by email that Salesforce hired too many people during the pandemic and is now facing a downturn. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBR events at City Space and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBR events newsletter. Go to wbur.org events. It is 46 degrees now under cloudy skies in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Now to India, which will soon overtake China as the world's most populous country. In recent decades, India has developed quickly. But as that's happened, women have not joined the workforce as much as they have in other countries. In fact, Indian women have been dropping out. And that has stumped some economists. From Mumbai, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Growing up in a city that's home to the Bollywood film industry, Aditi Dulap dreamed of being an actor. She never thought of doing a nine-to-five office job. But then suddenly everything changed, that one incident in my life. That one incident 28 years ago was a train accident that killed her brother. Her father had a heart condition, and suddenly the family's financial security fell on Aditi, who was then just 21. So she got a job as a secretary at the German manufacturing company Siemens. That was a big deal back then, especially for a woman. Getting into Siemens is a big thing. The eyebrows of the person used to be, oh, Siemens, good, yeah. Aditi climbed the ranks, and about two decades later, she was an executive. She was living in a typical joint Indian family with her in-laws and kids when her father-in-law died. Suddenly, the role of caregiver fell on her, and she struggled. As a married woman, you know how it happens. We were not able to keep everybody happy. My mother, she was not supportive that time. My mother-in-law was not supportive. So So Aditi eventually joined the ranks of the millions of Indian women each year who put their professional lives on hold. Now you see girls and women either leaving their jobs early or even actually leaving their jobs totally. Economist Ritu Devan says part of the reason is prosperity. India is now a middle-income country, but lots of folks still have conservative ideas about a woman's role in the family. You know, you have the standard, oh, my wife does not need to work. And the woman says, I don't need to work because my husband can provide for me. I was reminded of that recently while interviewing rickshaw drivers in Mumbai about inflation. Things have gotten so bad, one driver told me, that his wife may actually have to get a job for the first time. For him, women's labor is an emergency stopgap measure, not something to rely on. 
Now, it's true that Aditi could quit her job at Siemens only because she's from a relatively well-off family with savings. But what's perplexing, says Cher Varick, an economist at the International Labour Organization, is that lower-income women are dropping out of the workforce too, in even greater numbers. Which indeed was a real puzzle over the last decade or so, particularly during the period when the Indian economy was growing fast. Statistics show fewer than one in five Indian women work, at least formally, though most work here is informal, agricultural or domestic labor that often isn't tracked. As Indians migrate to cities, they often don't have extended family around to help with childcare. Many women also have safety concerns about commuting. But Varick says there's an even bigger factor. And that's the lack of decent and productive employment that would be appropriate and accessible for women. Now, this is especially true for women who are unskilled, who live in rural areas, and who shoulder the bulk of childcare and household duties in families without high-tech appliances. In other words, a majority of women in India. In the noisy outdoor market of Mumbai, a gaggle of female neighbors commiserate about their employers. They all work as cleaners and cooks in other people's homes. It's sporadic and insecure, and weak labor laws don't help. None of us get decent wages or paid time off, says Sangeeta Devde, who is separated from her husband and trying to support their son. She says one of her employers recently replaced her with a younger man who doesn't have to juggle unpaid work at home like she does. So this is one of India's challenges as it overtakes China as the world's most populous country, not only to create jobs for all of its workers, but to create the conditions that will allow its female workers to take them. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai. East Bay has sent out its last catalog. The parent company of the sportswear retailer is reorganizing and shutting down the brand. But back in the 90s, East Bay mail order catalogs featured the hottest new athletic shoes and pro jerseys. And NPR's Gus Contreras, he was a child of the 90s. I used to spend hours and hours poring over the latest East Bay catalogs like a detective combing through mounds of evidence. I'd closely examine the newest sneakers worn by my favorite athletes like Ken Griffey Jr. and Deion Sanders. This is the shoe that Deion wears in the field, and now it's mine, all mine, and nobody can take it from me. Before widespread online shopping, East Bay was the place to check out the latest sneakers and sports apparel. East Bay was the first time that you could bring them all to your home, and it was... Champ Sports with all the jerseys, Foot Locker with all the shoes, and pretty much in about 100 pages, you could see all of that right in front of you. That's Nick DePaula. He covers the sneaker industry for ESPN. He's also a 90s kid who is obsessed with East Bay. I always joke with people, and I literally was reading the sports page on East Bay with my cereal every morning. Never mind that neither of us had the money to afford those Nike sneakers or starter jackets. We both basically memorized those catalogs down to how much those shoes weighed in ounces. The level of detail that was kind of jam-packed into every page was pretty extensive. It was a great sort of immediate database uh, behind the guise of a selling catalog. <laughs> and, and it was 
you know, when you're 10 or 12 years old, you don't you don't think of it in that way. You might think of it more like a magazine. You know, when that East Bay magazine shows up, you start flipping through. And you know, always was anxious to get the magazine and look through it. And uh, seeing East Bay magazines, you know, when they came out. And Baseball and basketball superstars Clayton Kershaw, Kevin Durant, and LeBron James certainly did when they were kids. At least that's what they said in East Bay promotional videos. East Bay, the company, was founded in 1980 by two guys selling running shoes out of a van in north central Wisconsin. It grew into a national mail order retailer and eventually was bought by Foot Locker in 1997. Most of the approximately 200 employees left at the company will be laid off by April, according to Foot Locker. East Bay itself pivoted to online sales a while ago, but the internet has changed how sneakers are marketed and sold. So here's the box. Voila. Let me go ahead and take them out for y'all. Bam! Social media and apps can hype new shoe releases much quicker than a catalog can. And large shoe companies are increasingly selling direct to consumer without a retailer, which made it harder for brands like East Bay. But it's not hard to remember that their reach was once everywhere. Before Instagram, before message boards, and East Bay itself was pretty much the anchor point of sneaker culture, whether it's Jordan 11, Air Max 95, any Penny Hardaway shoe. You know, those models have been for now three decades sought after routinely, and there's a, a page on East Bay you could find for each one of those. ESPN's Nick DePaula thinks the catalog set him on a path to where he is with his career. And as I've worked on this story, I've realized that some of the styles that influence me to this day kind of comes from those catalogs too. Even if I never got a pair of the Deion Sanders Nike Air DT Max 96s from East Bay. Gus Contreras, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics and Bruins have tonight off. They've both got road games ahead tomorrow night. And for Red Sox fans who just can't wait until springtime, the annual Sox Winter Weekend will be held January 20th and 21st in venues across Springfield. Among the current and former players scheduled to be there, Pedro Martinez, Big Poppy, Brian Bale, Rafael Devers, and Wade Boggs. In the forecast, clouds overnight tonight, some rain as well. Another cloudy day tomorrow and drizzly. Temperatures in the low to mid-40s. Climate catastrophes are endangering South Florida communities. The streets just look like pickup sticks. Telephone poles, trees, power wires everywhere. I'm Kimberly Adams. Solutions to protect infrastructure, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The stalemate over electing the next Speaker of the House has stretched into a second day on Capitol Hill. Republican Kevin McCarthy appears to have failed on a sixth ballot in his bid for the speakership. NPR Susan Davis reports McCarthy has spent weeks making concessions to a group of Republican hardliners who continue to block him from claiming the gavel. 
This isn't a new problem for him. Uh, and he was willing to go to certain lengths. You know, other members have been lobbying for things like committee assignments or, or roles in the next conference. But in the end, a group of conservatives, you know, they kept asking for more. And most of the conference remains united behind McCarthy. And we're frankly getting more and more angry at this uh group of Republicans saying that you don't get to dictate the future path of the majority. That's NPR's Susan Davis reporting. The FBI is offering a $500,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of a suspect who placed pipe bombs in Washington, D.C. in January of 2021. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the investigation remains a high priority for federal agents. The FBI wants to know who put pipe bombs near the headquarters of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee the night before the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Authorities increased the reward to a half million dollars ahead of the second anniversary of the January 6th attack. Those bombs never detonated, but the FBI says they could have hurt innocent bystanders. The FBI's arrested more than 950 people in connection with the Capitol siege. In November, a federal jury convicted two leaders of the far-right Oath Keepers group of seditious conspiracy. That is, the attempt to overthrow the government by force. They'll be sentenced later this year. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Capitol Hill, members of the all-Democratic Massachusetts congressional delegation are reacting to the ongoing struggle by House Republicans to elect a new House Speaker. As you heard from NPR, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy failed to win six votes over the last two days. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says House Republicans are in chaos. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says the GOP is proving it is ill-prepared to govern. In Massachusetts, another step in the transition of power from the Baker administration to the new Healy administration has taken place. This afternoon, Governor Charlie Baker conducted the traditional handoff of items that symbolize the governor's office to his successor, Maura Healy. They include two historic gavels and a key to the governor's office. Healy called it a beautiful moment. She says she's preparing what she's going to say in tomorrow's inaugural address. There are a number of challenges for families, for residents, for our businesses all around that, this state. We, we know it, we've seen it, we've lived it. And we, I think, view those challenges as opportunities. And I think that's the spirit that you'll hear tomorrow. It's a spirit of hope, of optimism. In the next hour, Charlie Baker will leave the Statehouse for the final time as governor. His ceremonial long walk, as it's called, starts at 5 o'clock. Governor-elect Healy and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will be sworn in tomorrow. And you can hear live coverage on WBR beginning at 11 tomorrow morning. It's the first day of the new state legislature in Massachusetts. Last night, the previous session ended with a flurry of activity. Lawmakers sent several bills to Governor Baker's desk. One would increase the tracking of sales of vehicle catalytic converters to prevent rising thefts. Another would give potential foster parents greater access to a child's health and education history prior to placement. Baker has until midday tomorrow to sign them into law, or the new legislature will need to pass them once again. And lawmakers are planning to file a bill in the new legislative session to strengthen the penalty for firing a gun at a house. State Senator Edward Kennedy of Lowell says he wants to make the act a felony instead of a misdemeanor. He says some people use firearms to terrorize others. In Lowell, where over a five-year period, there were literally one and a half shootings at dwellings per month. It's just done for intimidation. And luckily, nobody has been killed, but it's only a matter of time. 
The bill also has the backing of Middlesex DA Marion Ryan. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, chilly weather should last into the weekend. Temperatures dropping a few degrees to about 40 overnight tonight. Rain likely, then we should have more clouds ahead tomorrow. The chance of showers in the low 40s. Clouds persist on Friday. Showers too, right about 40. And then finally for the weekend, increasingly sunny and increasingly chilly as well. 46 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On paper, Speaker of the House is a great job. You get to set the legislative agenda. You're second in line for the presidency. You get to whack a big gavel. In reality, well, here's how former Republican Speaker John Boehner put it in his memoir. I was living in crazy town now. And when I took the Speaker's gavel in 2011... I became its mayor. For the past decade or so, a faction of hard-right conservatives have made life very unpleasant for Republican speakers. That group is now organized as the Freedom Caucus, and today some of its members are working hard to put a stop to Kevin McCarthy's bid for the job. Well, to understand how such a small group of legislators came to have such big influence, I'm joined by Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent and columnist for The Washington Post, and he joins us from the Capitol. Hey there, Paul. Hey. Mary Louise, how are you? I am doing all right. Thanks. So if I were to ask you, just describe this group that is set on sinking McCarthy's speaker hopes. What would you tell me? They are the sort of latest outgrowth of just a hard right faction of House Republicans that really came to the forefront in 2009 and 2010 as the Tea Party started to to sort of brew in response to Wall Street bailout and other big government spending programs. And uh, they've evolved and evolved. By 2015, they created something called the House Freedom Caucus. Mm -hmm. But this is sort of the latest iteration. A lot of these folks that are now McCarthy's biggest antagonists have only been around a couple terms. Some of them are actually, you know, freshmen elect uh, who have never even taken the oath of office. And can't until the speaker is elected. There's no either. Yeah. Yes. Um, And they're really taking the idea of tactical warfare for the sake of warfare. Um, There's really not a whole lot of policy positions that they're advocating. It's more like blowing stuff up uh, just so you can blow stuff up. Well, and you said they have evolved and evolved over the the decade or so that this 
group has been around. I mean, how straight a line would you draw between the Tea Party in 2013 and the Freedom Caucus today? There's definitely a, a straight line with a few zigs and zags along the way. But, you know, like Jim Jordan was a co-founder of the Freedom Caucus. But the longer he was there, the more Jordan sort of realized that he was more and more senior. And wow, he could become the top Republican on a committee like House Oversight and then House Judiciary. That means he needs actual people in power who are become speakers. And so now these other folks who are, are leading this current fight uh, against Jim Jordan, who is Jordan is being a big uh, backer of McCarthy. Um, These are the younger, newer folks who don't have these plum gavels to to become chairs. So they're the ones who are taking up this this fight now. So to what seems to be the central question, how such a small group has so much sway over the larger party. Does it boil down to that in a Congress like we have right now, where the margin is so thin, it, it only takes a very small number of people to, to hold the rest of the party hostage? Yeah. When you have a majority with 222, which is what the Republicans currently have, you only have four votes to spare if you're trying to do something on a party line. There was a belief that Republicans were going to win 20, 30, 40 seats in a big red wave and they were going to have this enormous majority. But because they were so unsuccessful, McCarthy and Republicans, in so many districts, they only picked up nine seats overall, which got them to 222. And boy, they only have four votes to spare. All of a sudden, these outliers, these renegades realized, wow, we are relevant. We are more relevant now than we have been since the, it'd be more, they're more relevant now than they were when Boehner was speaker. You're making me wonder why Kevin McCarthy or indeed anyone would want the speaker's job. You know, I think McCarthy has just fallen for this lore of wanting to win to, for the sake of winning. I think he just has been in leadership so long that he just thinks, well, I'm supposed to be speaker. You know, I started out as chief deputy whip and then I became majority whip and then I became majority leader and then I became minority leader. It's like he wants to do it just because he thinks he's supposed to do it. Last question, just to to step back, to broaden this out, because this is bigger than the speaker's job. One way or the other, they'll presumably at some point figure out who's going to be speaker. But you're reminding me of an interview I did earlier this week with Brendan Buck, a communication strategist who worked for John Boehner and Paul Ryan when they were speakers. And he had real concern that wherever this lands, it does not bode well for Republicans' ability to run the House efficiently and get anything done at all going forward. Do you share that concern? Uh, Brendan is a very smart, smart man and who knows uh, the House very well. You know, the vote for the House Speaker is supposed to basically be the easiest vote of the two-year Congress. If it's this big of a trouble to elect a speaker, what happens when there's a really big, important vote policy-wise that is coming down the pike? Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent and columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you. 
The United Arab Emirates is calling for an urgent session of the United Nations Security Council. This comes after a visit yesterday by Israel's far-right national security minister to to Jerusalem's holiest site. The request by the UAE highlights the difficulties Arab governments face in building ties with Israel under its new leadership. NPR's Aya Batrawi reports from Dubai. Israelis have made hundreds of thousands of trips to the United Arab Emirates since the country's formalized ties two years ago. But it was never going to be an easy relationship. Under Israel's new government that's packed with ultranationalists, those budding ties are already being tested. The UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, and Jordan slammed Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir's visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound Tuesday. All four countries have ties with Israel, but the occupation in the Palestinian territories is unpopular among people in the region. Elham Fakhro is a Bahraini research fellow on Gulf Affairs at the University of Exeter and the author of a forthcoming book on the Abraham Accords. She says the relationship between the UAE and Israel has matured since they first established ties. The Emiratis, she says, are bolder in their actions and sending a public message to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They are trying to use their influence. Whether or not Netanyahu is going to be a willing partner in that is a different question. Uh, So far, he's been moving in an opposite direction. It was only last month that the UAE's ambassador in Tel Aviv shook hands with Ben Gavir, a leader in the Jewish Power Party who was convicted in Israel on anti-Arab racism charges. He's advocated changing the status quo and allowing Jewish prayer at Al-Aqsa, which is on a hilltop revered in Judaism as the Temple Mount. Muslims perceive that as a step toward taking over the site. The U.S. supports preserving the status quo. Arab governments called Ben Gavir's visit provocative and warned Israel against moves that escalate tensions. Netanyahu says Israel is not trying to change the status quo at Al-Aqsa. Israel is reportedly lobbying to block action at the Security Council. Ayyub Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. listening to All Things Considered. So far, it's been an unhappy new year for Tesla. The transformational electric automaker has seen its stock values plummet. Meanwhile, its CEO, Elon Musk, does not always seem like he's paying attention. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins me to talk about what is going wrong at Tesla and maybe also what's going right. Hey, Camilla. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, so I want to begin with a fact, which is Tesla delivered a record number of cars last year. So Uh why exactly was this an awful year? For any other company, this would have been great. I mean, they didn't just increase, they didn't just set a record, they boosted sales 40%. But I don't need to tell you, Tesla isn't any other company, right? It is an extraordinary company. Its stock values used to be straight up astonishing. It was at one point a trillion dollar company. And this year, it grew less than it had hoped to grow, month after month. And on the stock market, the market cap of the company lost $700 billion. That's more than most of the established automakers are worth combined. Why? Why did the stock value crash so much? Well, partly there were forces that affected the entire auto industry. Overall, car sales dropped over the year. Automakers started the year without enough parts. They couldn't make all the cars they wanted to make. Now they have parts, but 
buyers aren't exactly lining up. Prices are incredibly high. Teslas were expensive to start with. Now it's worse. Interest rates are up. All of that hurts demand. And then for electric vehicles specifically, sales actually did go up last year. People bought more electric vehicles, but Tesla is also starting to face real competition for the first time, basically. Vehicles like the Kia EV6, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, they're giving their Model 3 a run for its money. And then I have to mention, of course, Elon Musk went off and bought Twitter. True, uh, uh, which is a whole different story. But Musk, oh, yes. he's had he's had a bunch of different side projects. He's done all kinds of things while he's run Tesla. Why why does the Twitter side line seem different? I think there's three things. One is it's hurting Tesla's brand. Elon Musk is Tesla for a lot of people, including a lot of car buyers. His sort of aura of genius is part of why people like the vehicles. And right now, Musk is basically a professional Twitter troll. And he's embraced some right-wing positions, which may turn off some people, especially liberals who are more likely to buy electric cars. So that's one item. Then there's the fact that it's a distraction. He's spending a lot of time on Twitter. Some investors who are big fans of Elon Musk think he's spending too much time on Twitter and not enough time on Tesla. And finally, he had to sell a lot of Tesla stock, which directly helped drive values down. So is Tesla in serious trouble? It kind of depends if you're asking about Tesla the stock or Tesla the company hmm. that like, sells cars in the real world to real people, right? On Wall Street, it was an atrocious year for Tesla. It's kind of hard to overstate. But in the real world, Tesla grew. It's selling more electric vehicles than anybody else. It has the best charging network out there. And again, electric vehicle sales are going up. So even as there's more competition, Tesla can still sell an awful lot of cars. Stephanie Brindley is with S&P Global Mobility. Their share of the total market can come up a little bit and their volumes are still gonna come up and they're still gonna make money. So yes, Tesla did not grow as much as it wanted this year, but look, they set a very ambitious goal. The company got 94% of the way there. If I get that close to my New Year's resolutions, I think I'm gonna round it up and call it a win. <laughs> Here's to rounding up New Year's resolutions. Thank you, Camila. Thank you. That's NPR's Camila Dominoski. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in Germany, climate protesters are becoming increasingly disruptive as the country turns to coal to replace Russian natural gas. That story in the latest installment of My Unsung Hero, still ahead. Celtics are off until tomorrow night when they'll be on national TV for a shutout in Dallas. The Bruins are out west for a while. They play the L.A. Kings tomorrow and then move on to San Jose and Anaheim before they return to the Garden on Sunday. Forecast chilly weather should last into the weekend. Temperatures dropping a few degrees to about 40 overnight tonight. Rain likely should have more clouds tomorrow. Chance of showers. Temperatures in the low 40s. Clouds persist on Friday. Showers too, right about 40. And finally, for the weekend, increasingly sunny and increasingly chilly. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. 
your car has a story too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Europe has been trying to replace Russian natural gas after Moscow cut supplies over the summer. Germany is firing up old coal-burning power plants to fill the void and investing in new liquefied natural gas facilities. Meanwhile, climate activists there are becoming increasingly disruptive in their protests against fossil fuels. As Esme Nicholson reports, the civil disobedience is unpopular, but support for the message is growing. It's rush hour on a cold, snowy morning in Berlin. At a highway exit on the western edge of the city, commuter traffic has come to a standstill as a dozen climate activists sit down on a pedestrian crossing and glue themselves to the road. One of them is Lina Jonsen. We're here today because we can't just look and see what the government is doing right now. They're not taking overdue measures to protect future generations' lives. Jonsen and a dozen others sit in front of four lanes of cars and trucks. Some of the drivers rev their engines out of frustration. Others get out of their cars and shout in anger. Jonsen admits she's intimidated, but... I'm more scared of how people will react when we like fight for food or drinking water in like a few decades. Like, I want to circumvent this like future. I, I don't want this. One driver, 48-year-old Jenny Proler, says she's also anxious about the future of the planet, but that this is not the place to discuss it. I have nothing against protests, but this is something else, the gall of these people. I'm trying to get my daughter to an exam. She's a law student and sitting the bar this morning. Another activist, 33-year-old Theodor Schnarr, says he knows he's unpopular. According to a recent poll conducted for Der Spiegel magazine, 86% of Germans disapprove of protesters disrupting their commutes, but 53% agree that the government is not doing enough to tackle climate change. Schnarr has been arrested and locked up twice for stopping traffic. As a biochemist, he says he's all too aware of the science behind the warnings about climate change. If we would compare the situation to war, we wouldn't go on as normal. And we are at a desperate situation. So we also should act like it and implement an emergency economy. This is one of the things that the German government should do. Germany's three-party coalition government is not skimping on spending. Chancellor Olaf Scholz, a social democrat, announced an extra 200 billion euro budget to help cover rocketing energy prices this winter. But this money is paying for fossil fuels replacing Russian gas. The economy and climate protection minister Robert Habeck, who is a member of the environmentalist Green Party, insists this is a short-term measure. The fuel of the future is not coal, gas or oil. Our task is to create a carbon-neutral economy. That's why this government will not tolerate nimbyism about wind parks. And it's why we expect everybody to do their bit to help build a future free from fossil fuels. 46% of Germany's electricity comes from renewable sources. Habeck is confident he can double this in the next seven years. Christoph Balz from the NGO German Watch praises the government for passing ambitious legislation on renewable energy, but says it's taking too long to implement because of disagreements between the coalition's three parties. 
Germany is way behind on renewables and embracing electric vehicles because Green Party policies are being blocked and delayed by the libertarian Free Democrats. And that's just two of the three parties in government. Bal says activists who violate the law must face the legal consequences, but he says Germany's highest court has sided with environmentalists before. Das Bundesverfassungsgericht. Germany's constitutional court has already ruled that the previous government's lack of action on climate change was unconstitutional. So the same court may well view these protests as legitimate because they aim to protect greater legal interests, namely the fundamental rights of future generations. Police have conducted a number of raids against the group and are investigating whether a recent protest delayed an ambulance from reaching a fatal collision. Schnarr insists they always let the emergency services through. We don't want to endanger people, we don't want to endanger ourselves. This is the very opposite of what our government is doing. But back on the highway, police struggle to unstick the activists and are unable to let through an ER doctor on his way to hospital. It's clear a sense of urgency and frustration is shared by all. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Nicole George O'Brien. When Nicole was 16, she began having seizures. Her doctors tried out a bunch of medications, but her seizures wouldn't stop. So when she was 21, she had brain surgery and her life went back to normal. I hadn't had any seizures for five years, when one day, while I was driving over the San Mateo Bridge to get to my job, I had a seizure. And when I woke up in the hospital and realized what had happened, I was horrified and really worried that I had hurt someone. And that was one of the first things I was asking the nurses and the doctor that were there, did I hurt someone? Did I kill anybody? And they told me about how a man had seen me having a seizure in my car and pulled over and helped people go around me, directed traffic around me, and somehow no one was hurt. I didn't hit anyone. They didn't hit me which is kind of a miracle. No one I talked to had any information about who he was. I believe he had just driven off after that, after the ambulance came. So I don't know anything about him, but he clearly changed my life and probably the lives of several people on the freeway that morning. I later became a therapist, and I think one of the influences on my decision to become a therapist was just the care and kindness that he showed me that day. And it contributed to my desire to do a type of work that also gave care and kindness. I have two kids. I've had a great life and I feel incredibly grateful to him for allowing that to happen. 
Nicole George O'Brien from Arcata, California. After the accident, she began a new medication. She has not had any seizures since. Well, we would love to hear about your unsung hero. You can use your phone, record your story, takes five minutes or less, and then you send it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The first week of the new year is bringing a whole lot of gray. Clouds press on tonight. Should be foggy and rainy, right about 41 degrees. Windy tonight and tomorrow, too. Tomorrow, overcast and chillier, averaging about 40 degrees. Then for Friday, cloudy and damp again, staying around 40. Skies may brighten for Saturday. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Be enchanted with awe-inspiring music by Beethoven and Mozart, Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For a second day, the House of Representatives is in suspended animation. It can't start a new session until it elects a Speaker of the House, and a small group of Republicans continues to block Kevin McCarthy's bid to become Speaker. Sure, it looks messy, but democracy is messy. Democracy is messy. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also ahead, Rick Singer has been sentenced in federal court in Boston for having masterminded the Varsity Blues admission scheme that helped wealthy clients bribe and cheat to get their children into top-tier colleges. And rising interest rates and home prices have left many potential homeowners feeling pessimistic. I guess I've been discouraged about the prospect of becoming a home buyer. Is that something that I still want to do? Home ownership is a way to build wealth, but it's no longer an option for many people. That story and much more is still to come. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Another day, another failed effort by Republicans to elect a Speaker of the House with no clear path forward. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy in half a dozen ballots has failed to get the votes needed. Wisconsin lawmaker Mike Gallagher saying McCarthy is the right choice. Nobody has done more to lay out a plan for how we restore the basic functioning of this institution 
than Kevin McCarthy. But despite that endorsement, Gallagher acknowledged lawmakers are no closer than they were a day ago to resolving the impasse. It looks messy, but democracy is messy. Democracy is messy by, by design. By design. The chamber's most conservative members have repeatedly voted in favor of other candidates, maintaining McCarthy's neither tough enough or conservative enough to battle Democrats. The House has adjourned till 8 p.m. Eastern tonight to presumably try again. Much of the West Coast is bracing itself for a major winter storm. NPR's Nathan Rott reports inches of snow and rain are expected from an atmospheric river. Atmospheric rivers are pretty much what they sound like, a long, narrow band of dense water vapor over the ocean. The thing is, when that band hits land, it drops a lot of that water in the form of rain or snow. Pretty much all of northern and central California are under flood warnings with this newest atmospheric river. The risks are heightened because the ground is saturated and rivers are full after a similar system hit the area last week. Scientists are still trying to learn more about the phenomena, but it's widely believed that atmospheric rivers are getting more intense as human actions cause the world to warm. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Despite the slowdown in the economy, the labor market remains strong. That's according to new numbers out from the Labor Department today. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. At the end of November, there were still 1.7 job openings for every unemployed worker in the U.S. That's about what it's been in recent months. Layoffs remain below pre-pandemic levels, except in the tech sector, where there have been notable layoffs. And the so-called great resignation that began in 2021 continues in many sectors with a lot of churn among workers at hotels and restaurants, and also in retail, transportation, and warehouses. All of this indicates that amid fears of a recession, the labor market is still pretty hot. Workers continue to have a lot of opportunities to seek something new. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Business software company Salesforce among those tech companies announcing layoffs. It says it will lay off around 10% of its workforce, or roughly 8,000 employees. Announcement coming as more companies prune payrolls that grew during a two your boom spurred in part by the coronavirus lockdown. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 133 points. The Nasdaq rose 71 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A ceremony marking the final hours of Governor Charlie Baker's two terms in office is about to get underway at the Massachusetts State House, and WBUR Steve Brown is there. Tell us, Steve, what's happening. Well, Lisa, we're waiting for the governor to emerge from his office for the final time. He was supposed to step out at five. He's a, he's a couple minutes late. Uh, I'm on the f- uh, third floor, just about 70 feet fr- down from his office. I'm seeing right now the uh, ancient and honorable artillery, the honor guard for the governor. Uh, they all just uh, began to salute. So I am uh, assuming uh, just down at the end of the hall that the governor is leaving his office. He'll walk along the red carpet through the building and he will... Uh, uh, get to uh, greet uh, supporters uh, who and uh, people who have worked for him uh, over the years as he uh, emerges from the building. He should be out front in about a half an hour. And when does the governor's term formally come to an end? Well, he'll still be governor tonight and into tomorrow morning. As a matter of fact, there are about 60 bills on his desk that uh, he can still sign uh, up until noontime tomorrow. That's when uh, Mara Healy will uh, take the oath of office and she'll become the new governor. All right, that's Steve Brown live at the State House. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Lisa. Also in the news, Massachusetts Congressman Lori Trahan says she couldn't be more excited about tomorrow's inauguration of Governor elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor elect Kim Driscoll. 
it really is a moment for women across our state and across our country to witness Maura Healy and Kim Driscoll get sworn in as governor and lieutenant governor for the state. I am so excited about their partnership, about, you know, the policies that they've, you know, laid out and really excited to see what they're going to accomplish together. WBR will have live special coverage at the inauguration starting at 11. Governor Laitili is continuing to shape her cabinet. Today she named Yvonne Howe as the Secretary of Economic Development. Howe will be the first woman and the first person of color to lead the state's chief economic development agency. Healy today also named Jason Snyder as Secretary of Technology Services and Security. He previously served as Chief Technology Officer during the Deval Patrick administration. Healy still needs to name secretaries for public safety, housing, and labor. In the forecast, a cold rain tonight, maybe tomorrow and Friday, too. Temperatures ranging from the mid-30s to about 40 degrees through the stretch. Brighter skies should be ahead for the weekend, but still on the chilly side. 43 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For the second day, California Republican Kevin McCarthy has failed to get the votes he needs to become Speaker of the House. Even before the session started today, McCarthy admitted it might not happen today, but he insisted he will eventually prevail. We're going to continue to talk. and We'll find an agreement where we all get together and we'll work through this and we'll get it done. We'll see. And meanwhile, the twists and turns playing out on the floor have brought the House to a standstill. They can't start a new session. Members can't be sworn in until a speaker is elected. Here with the latest from the Capitol, NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Hey there. Hey there. Hey. So I've been keeping watch all day. The votes are not changing. Nobody is budging. Has McCarthy made any progress or does this just keep going? You're right. Uh, I mean, as the last round of voting began, Florida Republican Congresswoman Kat Kamek, who stood up to nominate McCarthy for the sixth ballot, started her remarks saying it's Groundhog Day again. McCarthy really isn't making any progress. There is still a group of 20 Republicans who are voting against him. Republicans only hold a four-seat majority right now, so McCarthy can't afford to lose more than a few defections. Before the, Beyond the 20 opponents, there was another member, Indiana Republican Victoria Sparts, who had been voting for McCarthy but voted present today. So things have been sort of trending away from McCarthy. The group opposing Kevin McCarthy got behind a new candidate today, Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, who is black. He was first elected just two years ago. Texas Congressman Chip Roy, who uh, nominated him, pointed out he could become the first black speaker. But Donalds just got 20 votes, and he actually admitted he wasn't really planning to run, but he was trying to move forward the effort to try to get Republicans to a consensus. Part of my responsibility is to make sure that our conference gets to a point where we are doing the things um, in an effective and construction, constructive way, excuse me, uh, that we campaign on back home. So I, I'm, I'm going to help do that any way I can. Um, you can hear just what quite quite what a day y'all are having there on <laughs> Capitol Hill there. Are we learning any more, Deirdre, about what McCarthy's opponents want? That's been the complaint from McCarthy's allies. They don't really say specifically. I talked to one of them, South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman, who says he's sticking together. He says it's not personal. The group is sticking together. But he doesn't think McCarthy is a true fiscal conservative. He told me he wants McCarthy to agree and insist on major federal spending cuts or force a government shutdown this fall. I want to know. Here's my question. 
if next September, if we're faced with another um, crisis and either raise the debt ceiling or shut the government down, will you shut the government down? If he says no, I'm out. I'm out. He's got to do that. Norman even acknowledged that with divided government, the cuts that he and other conservatives are pushing for can't even get through, but he argued the country's facing a crisis and he wants to push back. Democrats, as you know, have been warning when Republicans took over the House, there could be this standoff overspending and the credit limit, and they're worried about the impact on the economy if that happens. Well, are there talks going on? Are there efforts to break the logjam? There are starting to be more talks. A McCarthy uh, aide said there's been a group that's been sort of reaching out. I've been watching inside the chamber, and there's all kinds of really intense huddles in different groups around the floor throughout the day. But we may be reaching a point where some members are starting to say out loud that McCarthy may need to step aside. Hmm. Uh, Colorado Republican Ken Buck said in an interview on CNN, he could reach his limit and they may need to turn to someone else. It's unclear who that would be. Maybe McCarthy's number two, Steve Scalise from Louisiana. But the House is in a adjournment period for a couple hours now. So the closed door discussions will just keep continuing. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thank you. While Republicans grabbed headlines yesterday for not choosing a Speaker of the House on the first ballot for the first time in 100 years, across the aisle, Democrats also had a historic day. Madam Clerk, a Latino is nominating for leader of this chamber a Black man for the first time in our history. That is Representative Pete Aguilar from California nominating fellow Democrat Hakeem Jeffries. Aguilar touted Jeffries' accomplishments both in Washington and back home in Brooklyn since he joined the House in 2013. We are unified behind a speaker who is an unapologetic advocate for protecting and expanding our freedoms. Jeffries repeatedly earned the support of every member of his caucus, the first time a Democratic leader has done so since 2007. That's the year when they elected Nancy Pelosi. She led her party since 2003. Pelosi stepped down from her post after the midterms last year, and yesterday she enthusiastically cast her vote for Jeffries. The symbolic torch passing received a standing ovation from Democrats. Pelosi. Happily, the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries, she said there, and she blew a kiss in his direction. Many representatives noted the historic moment while casting their vote. This is Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas. Spirit of Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Elijah Cummings, I'm usually proud to cast my vote for the next speaker, Hakeem Jeffries. Jeffries. Nakima Williams also referenced her fellow Georgian, the late Congressman John Lewis. Jeffries. Al Green of Texas. And still I rise and I proudly cast my vote on behalf of the enslaved people who built this capital. I cast my vote for the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries. Jeffries. The historic moment was also a joyful one for members, including Jeffrey's fellow New Yorker, Yvette Clark. The bad, brilliant brother from Brooklyn. (laughs) Jeffrey's. But when it came time for Jeffrey's to cast his own vote, he kept it simple. Jeffrey's. Representative Hakeem Jeffries ended the first day of the 118th Congress with more votes than any other nominee, Republican or Democrat. Another note for the historians.
For Damar Hamlin, the 24-year-old player for the Buffalo Bills who collapsed during Monday night football, this season had been an opportunity to cherish, he said. A handful of injuries to teammates, including one that sent a close friend to the hospital in the middle of a game, had both opened a door for him to play and had him counting his blessings, as NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. When DeMar Hamlin was drafted by the Buffalo Bills in 2021, he was so thrilled that he said he'd be willing to do anything to be part of the team. I don't care if, it's a, if I got to pass out water at halftime. You know, I just, I just want to be on a winning team and I just want to contribute. Hamlin wasn't a big star coming right out of college. So last season, his rookie year, he was mostly playing special teams or just riding the bench, stuck watching a bunch of all pro level teammates play instead. But in a testament to his outlook on life, he saw that as a good thing. Me and my family, we all seen it as the perfect opportunity, you know, like to be able to come in and, and, and learn. And, you know, some rookies, they have the pressure of having to get out there right away. And, and they, might, they might burn their wick short because they might not be ready for their moment. It turned out his chance would come earlier this season. Nobody was expecting him to be a starter for the Bills, but in the team's second game, back in September against the Tennessee Titans, Hamlin was watching from the sidelines as his friend, Dane Jackson, took a big, scary hit. And there's an injured player down for Buffalo. Jackson was making a tackle when another player dove in and knocked his head straight back. Came in at the end, you see his head just get driven backwards. Wow, tough shot there. Oh, that's scary. It looked so bad that even on the TV broadcast, you could hear it when the crowd saw the replay on the Jumbotron. You hear the groan from the crowd. For Hamlin, it was a terrifying moment. He and Jackson are really close friends. They grew up together in Pittsburgh. They played against each other in Little League, then high school. They both went to Pitt, played there together for years. Then the Bills drafted Jackson, and the next year, Hamlin too. Both guys have called it a dream come true to play together as pros. So to watch his friend go down like that, to be taken off the field in an ambulance, it felt awful, Hamlin said after the game. It felt terrible. It felt like one of my brothers was down, um, you know? Hamlin had had to play after that. In the locker room, a reporter asked him what it felt like to come on the field. He said it was real tough. Uh, real tough, you know, because it's like, it's like real life stuff going on, you know? Um, life is bigger than football. Dane Jackson was able to make a quick recovery. He was back on the field in just two weeks. But his injury, then some to other teammates, opened the door for Hamlin. Since that September game, Hamlin has started 13 games for the Bills, including, of course, last Monday night. Even as he racked up playing time and tackles and interviews with Bills media teams who fawned over how much he was making of his opportunity, he took every chance to say how blessed he felt. It feels so surreal. Like, I can't even describe it, but I, I cherish it every second that I can, you know, every second of every day. Playing with Jackson was a constant reminder of the path they'd both taken, he said, as kids, high schoolers, college, working nonstop to have this shot in the NFL. Even just walking in the building first thing in the morning, like you feeling sleepy, you know, you ain't charged up for the day, but it's like, you know, I see Dane or we just picking the other one up, just putting it in perspective that like, we were we always wanted to be um, in, in the exact moment that we, we wanted to have it. Seeing his friend have such a scary injury this season had been a reminder to not take things for granted. In an interview after Jackson had recovered, Hamlin told a story about how the Bills' defensive backs were having a weekly group prayer. He and Jackson stood next to each other as they all joined hands. 
And I just grabbed his hand a little bit harder just because, you know, you never know when, like, the last day could be that you get in a experience something like this, you know. So I'm just, I'm cherishing it every moment I can. Hamlin is still in the ICU at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, though he is improving, the Bills said today in a statement. Last night, his friend Dane Jackson posted an old photo of the two on Instagram. Hamlin's arm thrown over Dane's shoulders, both guys smiling big. He wrote, quote, keep the prayers going, please. Real prayers. Real soldier, I love you. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The first gains of the new year. The Dow rose four-tenths of a percent, 133 points, to finish the session at 33,270. S&P grew by three-quarters of a percent to close at 3853. The Nasdaq gained nearly that much, rising about seven-tenths of a percent to end the day at 10,459. The former headquarters of Table Talk Pies in Worcester is being turned into affordable housing. The state has granted developer Boston Capital Investment a tax-exempt bond of nearly $20 million for the project. Table Talk plans to build 59 units of mixed-income affordable apartments at the site. It's part of a larger project that includes more than 400 residential housing units and 20,000 square feet of commercial space. Construction is expected to be complete in February of next year. Coming up on All Things Considered, if you belly up to the bar and order a non-alcoholic beer, you've got lots of company. Sales of alcohol-free beer, wine, and spirits are booming. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Should be drizzly through the evening hours. Rain ahead overnight tonight. Some gusty winds. Lows about 40. Tomorrow cloudy again. Showers possible. And then late in the afternoon should be pretty chilly, falling to about 35 degrees at this time tomorrow. Then for Friday, not much brighter. Should be cloudy, rainy, only about 40 degrees tops. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The mastermind of the Varsity Blues college admission scheme was sentenced today to three and a half years in prison. And as part of a deal with federal prosecutors, he must pay more than $19 million. Rick Singer had pleaded guilty to helping dozens of wealthy parents cheat their kids' way into top-tier schools using bribes, phony test scores, and fake resumes. NPR's Tovia Smith was at the sentencing in Boston and joins us now. Hi, Tovia. Hi there. So prosecutors wanted six years and Singer was asking for no time at all. So seems like things kind of settled into a middle ground. 
Exactly. Uh, prosecutors wanted more, uh, they said, given the gravity of the scheme and uh, how long Rick Singer was at it. Uh, remember, this was not just padding a couple resumes. Singer literally photoshopped students to make them look like star athletes in sports that they never played, and he bribed coaches to take them as recruits. And he also paid people to take admissions tests for students or correct their wrong answers, and he took in like $25 million on it all. But Singer argued he should get a discount, if you will, on his sentencing because he was so helpful, secretly recording hundreds of phone calls to help prosecutors make their cases against other defendants, dozens of them. But prosecutors say Singer also blew some cases by tipping off parents that were being investigated. So the judge ultimately decided this was serious business, as she put it, with huge amounts of money, dishonesty, and harm to people and institutions. And this three and a half years where she landed is less than prosecutors wanted, but still more than any other Varsity Blues defendant. Remind us, Tovia, if you can, what the other sentences have looked like. Right, the longest before this was two and a half years, a tennis coach that was who took bribes to get students in Georgetown. Um, nearly two-thirds of the sentences ran from no prison time to three months. So of the 50 or so uh, co-conspirators, uh, this is what Rick Singer got is way more time and also way more money that he will have to pay. And Singer was in court today, and this is the first time we've heard from him since the scandal broke back in 2019. What did he have to say today? He said, I'm ashamed of myself. Um, with Without a lot of emotion, he was reading from a statement. Uh, um, he also made a point of apologizing to the people he brought into the scheme and the schools he embarrassed. Uh, he said it was his dad who taught him that winning was everything, and he said he should have known better back then, but he says he does now, and he wants to devote the rest of his life to helping underserved kids. And before I let you go in the bit of time we have left, has anything changed in the world of college admissions since all of this came to light? Tovia, are you still with us? So prosecutors say these cases have prompted big reforms, um, though many take issue with that. None of the extra security around testing or recruiting, for, for example, addresses the inequities in that are perfectly legal, like favoring kids of big donors or kids of alumni through legacy admissions. Uh, I spoke to one person who has spent decades in admissions and advocating for equity in the process. And what he said is that he gives the current state of admissions uh, equity a C, which is the same letter grade, he says, as he would have given both. NPR's Tovia Smith, thank you. That is the sound of a can of Kraft IPA opening. And hang on. Yeah, it's actually not bad. Which I confess I was not totally confident about going in because this Kraft IPA made by Athletic Brewing Company is a non-alcoholic beer. It's part of a growing trend of non-alcoholic alternatives flooding the market right now. And since it is dry January, a time when a lot of us are trying to give up alcohol for the month, we have invited Planet Money's Greg Rosalski to tell us more about why this industry is booming. Hi there, Greg. Hey, Mary Louise, let's get this party started. There it is. 
Cheers. Cheers. I hear you cracking one on your end. I'll let you take a sip. <laughs> I got to say, it's such a treat to drink beers at work. And not get fired. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Well, while you sip, let me pose a first question, which is this. Um, we had a hard time deciding which non-alcoholic beer to try there. Like a zillion options now. Tell us about the whole playing field of non-alcoholic drinks today. First, I got to say, this this does not taste like the uh, non-alcoholic beer I remember from the past. So I don't know if you remember, there was Old Duels. It was mm-hmm. basically the only buzz-free game in town but now if you like the taste of alcoholic drinks but don't like the effects of alcohol you're basically living in a golden age we're talking drinks like kentucky 74 spiritless bourbon luminera alcohol removed chardonnay zero proof margaritas over the last year alone there have been more than 70 new non-alcoholic beers wines and spirits that have hit the market and to be clear non-alcoholic usually means it has less than half a percent of alcohol by volume Okay. Uh, I'm just sipping and swallowing Mm -hmm. here. I I will note, this stuff is pretty good, but like the hard stuff, the stuff I have tried, there's just a huge range in taste, in quality. Some of it is great. Some of it is pretty dreadful. Um, (laughs) What is the demand like? Are people buying these drinks? Yeah, apparently they are. I I talked to an analytics company called Nielsen IQ, which is tracking this market. Their data shows that the market for non-alcoholic beer, wine, and spirits grew more than 20% last year and more than 120% over the last three years. They suggest this is part of a broader trend of people caring more about their health and wellness. And the market for non-alcoholic drinks now sees around $400 million in annual sales in the United States. $400 million. How does that compare to the market for, for real alcohol? <laughs> well, it's super tiny. The traditional alcohol market is like a juggernaut. It's around $200 billion in annual sales. So these non-alcoholic alternatives are a teeny tiny fraction of that, less than half of 1%. But alcohol companies and entrepreneurs clearly see much more room for growth. Do they see it as an either or, I mean, should should companies that are focused on selling the hard stuff, on selling alcohol, do they see these new drinks as a threat to their core business? It's hard to say. At first blush, faux alcoholic beverages seem to be, to use econo-speak, a substitute for real-deal alcoholic drinks. In this view, consumers drink them instead of alcoholic drinks, and because of that, their demand goes down. But it's also possible that these fake alcoholic drinks are not a substitute. They could be what economists call a complement, which means consumer goods that are often purchased together, like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and what's interesting is that Nielsen IQ's data suggests this may indeed be the case. It finds that 82% of people who buy non-alcoholic beers, wines, and spirits also buy traditional alcoholic drinks. And as a group overall, they actually spend more money on beverages than the people who only drink the hard stuff. So the alcohol industry likely views this trend as Pretty awesome for them. <laughs> Pretty awesome. To use Econo speak. To use Econo speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, thanks for this. And I guess cheers. Bottoms up. Yeah, cheers and happy dry January. And to you. That is Greg Rosalski. And for more intoxicating content, hear what I did there? <laughs> more intoxicating content from Greg, you can subscribe to the Planet Money newsletter. It's at npr.org slash newsletter. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Charlie Baker exits the Massachusetts State House this evening for a final time as governor. You'll hear details of his ceremonial long walk happening at this hour and the latest on the transition to power to Governor-elect Maura Healey. That story is still ahead. Chilly weather should last into the weekend. Temperatures dropping a few degrees to about 40. Rain likely overnight tonight. Then more clouds tomorrow. Chance of showers in the low 40s. Clouds keep on coming on Friday. Showers too, right about 40 degrees. And finally for the weekend, increasingly sunny and increasingly chilly as well. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 530. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. It's time to play America's favorite jackpot game. The Lottery. A few big winners. Tonight we have another life-changing jackpot for you. But a lot of huge losers, including every state that relies on lottery revenue. Only 20 to 30 percent of every lottery dollar goes to the state beneficiary to the fund, so it's a lot less than people think. Well, where does the rest of the money go? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. After six rounds of voting over two days, Republican Kevin McCarthy continues to fail in his bid to become the next Speaker of the House. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports Republicans remain deadlocked at the mercy of a small but determined group of conservative hardliners. It's anyone's guess, really, to figure out what's going to happen today because uh, we've never been in this situation before. It hasn't been for 100 years that uh, voting for a speaker has gone beyond first ballot. We know that one of uh, McCarthy's endorsers is uh, former President Trump, and Trump has really been the person who has been, you know, the path to power for McCarthy. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. The House has adjourned until 8 p.m. local time. NFL player DeMar Hamlin is showing signs of improvement after his cardiac arrest on the field Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. NPR's Tom Goldman has this update on the Buffalo Bills' 24-year-old defensive back. In a statement, the Buffalo Bills say DeMar Hamlin remains in the ICU in critical condition with some signs of improvement. Hamlin collapsed after making a hard tackle against a Cincinnati wide receiver. Bengals head coach Zach Taylor has now talked to reporters for the first time since the incident. He praised Buffalo head coach Sean McDermott for the way McDermott led his team through the traumatic event. When I got over there, uh, the first thing he said was, I need to be at the hospital for DeMar and I shouldn't be coaching this game. The game was postponed. There's been no decision whether or not it'll be resumed. Buffalo and Cincinnati are expected to play their previously scheduled games this Sunday, the final day of the regular season. Tom Goldman, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker is leaving the Massachusetts State House for the final time as governor. He's been taking what's called the lone walk for the last half hour as he wraps up his two terms in office. WBUR's Steve Brown is at the State House. Is the walk long enough to take all that time? Steve, can you tell us what's going on? 
It sure is. He's been uh, taking uh, selfies with folks inside uh, as he's making his way. Usually it would take about uh, two to three minutes to get from the governor's office to the to the front door of the state house, but uh, obviously today taking a little bit longer. Uh, but um, I've got my eye on the the front doors of the state house, the front center doors, which are only open when a governor leaves for the last time. So this is one of the rare occasions it's open. They do open it if a visiting head of state comes. Uh, but uh, so far, those doors are closed. He's inside still uh, saying goodbye to folks. Uh, out here on the steps, the UMass uh, uh, band is uh, ready to play as our uh, state police uh, drum corps is, uh, is here. Uh, many former uh, and current uh, cabinet members are, are waiting outside along with uh, Governor Baker's family. Uh, when he comes down here, they will uh, take him to uh, Swampscott. He'll remain governor for the, for the evening uh, until noon tomorrow. And uh, could uh, actually take action on some proposed bills between now and then. You've seen a lot of these lone walks. Uh, does anything stand out to you about Baker's departure? Uh, it, it's kind of like the one uh, eight years ago when Deval Patrick left. Uh, this used to take place simultaneously as the new governor was uh, was being sworn in, which uh, made for some uh, some chaotic uh, scenes here at the state house as the new people were coming in and the old people were going out. Uh, Mitt Romney back in uh, 2007 decided let's do this the day before. So the day before is all about the outgoing governor and on inauguration day it is all about the incoming governor. And Steve Brown reporting live from the state house. Steve, is he just appearing there right now? I'm hearing the, the Well, applause. no, it's it's Lauren Baker who's uh, uh, coming down. So I would imagine he will be coming through those doors in just a minute or two. Okay, thank you. You'll report back. Governor-elect Maura Healey will be sworn in tomorrow at noontime. Our coverage of the inauguration ceremony begins at 11 tomorrow. A Cambridge police officer shot a man to death this afternoon. Cambridge police and the Middlesex DA say it happened near Chestnut Street in Cambridge. Investigators say the preliminary information suggests the man was in possession of a machete when he was shot by police. He was treated on the scene and then taken to a hospital where he died. The district attorney is leading an investigation into what happened. The U.S. Department of Transportation has rejected a request for federal funding to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges on Cape Cod. The State Transportation Department and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are seeking nearly $1.9 billion to replace the aging bridges over the Cape Cod Canal. That represents about half the total estimated project cost. The Army Corps of Engineers operates and maintains the two bridges at a, as a federally owned asset. State highway officials say they're disappointed with today's decision and will continue efforts to secure federal funding for the projects. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. A cold rain tonight, maybe tomorrow and Friday, too. Temperatures ranging from the mid-30s to about 40. Brighter skies should be ahead for the weekend. Still on the chilly side, though. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health. Containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. 
potential home buyers are facing several challenges in 2023. Home prices and interest rates are high, the supply of homes for sale is low. That's left many potential buyers feeling pessimistic. I guess I've been discouraged about the prospect of becoming a home buyer. I, yeah, I wonder if that is that something that I still want to do. Rebecca Bush is 27 and lives in Tennessee. She was looking for a home last year, but couldn't compete against buyers offering cash above asking price on homes she looked at. So right now, she's making do in her basement studio apartment. I just kind of wonder if I need to figure out a different place to build wealth. Is it, is it not in a home? I think ultimately I still have that dream that maybe I will be able to buy a home. But right now I'm, I'm trying to be open to the idea that maybe there's something else out there for me. Mariah Rogers also had to rethink her housing plans. Rogers is 50 and works as a real estate appraiser. She had been living in California, but as a single parent to four children, home prices in that state were out of her budget. So she moved to Alaska. She thought maybe there she could afford the home she wanted for her family. But that wasn't exactly the case. She ended up buying a 600-square-foot one-bedroom condo. A closet has turned into beautiful bunk beds that look like they're from a children's book uh, for the two little ones, the four- and the six-year-old. So every time they go to bed at night, they feel like they're climbing into their own little fort in a way. And it's the same for the 12 and the 13 year old is the room is large enough that I've separated it in a way that they each have their own completely private space. Rogers herself sleeps on a fold out sofa in the living room. It's not the spacious home she might have imagined. But it is my own little slice of pie and of the American dream. And it's a beautiful, beautiful slice. That's for sure. So how did home ownership become such a big part of the American dream? And how should Americans think about building wealth if they can't afford a home right now? We asked Chris Herbert. He's managing director of the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. Well, home ownership has been a central way of building wealth, I would say, certainly all throughout the post-war period. The wake of World War II, when the suburbs opened up, although I would say importantly, it was not an, an avenue that was open to many people of color, particularly African-Americans. And so while homeownership has long been an important source of wealth creation for whites, that hasn't been the case for black Americans. Because you brought that up, I'd, I'd just like to ask you, do you have a, a sense or are you able to break down what the racial demographics of home ownership are today? Well, today, about uh, 73% of white households own their homes, where that rate is 43% for, for black Americans. And so there's about a 30 percentage point gap in the home ownership rates between white and black households. For Hispanics, the gap is somewhat smaller. Hispanics own homes at about a 47% rate. So the gap's a little bit smaller, but still substantial. So the difference between uh, white households and black and Hispanic households and the opportunities to own, own a home are substantial. What is it that is continuing to fuel the racial wealth gap when it comes to home ownership? Well, one important piece of it is that historical pattern of owning and the fact that because people of color didn't get to own homes at the same rate in the 50s and 60s, and importantly, 
many times the, the the pattern of racial segregation meant that people of color were living in neighborhoods that over time have been subject to disinvestment and not have not appreciated as much is that people, uh, black and Hispanic households today, don't have as many parents who were homeowners. And that intergenerational transfer of wealth is an important means that people to today are able to put down a down payment to be able to buy a home. So one big reason that we have such substantial gaps in homeownership today is it's a reflection of the significant gaps we had a generation ago. You know, if you think back to the 1950s, there were almost ideal conditions for a spike in homeownership. A housing boom and rising incomes meant that many Americans were suddenly able to buy homes. But, you know, the landscape today just looks really different. More and more Americans, especially younger adults, are now worried about their ability to buy a home, certainly right now, but perhaps ever. Can you talk to us some about the factors that are making home ownership today so challenging for so many people out there? Well, you know, a big uh, reason why it's so much more challenging today is just housing is so much more expensive relative to incomes than it was back in the 1950s. And there's a several reasons for that. One is in the, back in the 1950s, we had wide open spaces on the outside of central cities that made it cheap to build whole new subdivisions of housing. And so we don't have that situation today. Most places are largely built out. If you want to find green space to build, you've got to go way out from central cities. And the other big difference between now and the 1950s, too, is that obviously we have a lot more regulation to control development so it doesn't have the environmental uh, impacts that we are concerned about. We have a lot more impact fees that are leveled to to pay for infrastructure that we had back in the 1950s that was largely paid for through either federal or state tax revenue. So the availability of land, the degree of regulation, and many times needed regulation to control for environmental damages makes it much more expensive to build housing today. You know, and this leaves me thinking about all of those people who aren't homeowners. We've heard from many people who can't afford to buy a house right now and who are not entirely sure what to do with their money. In the meantime, what are ways that people can continue to build wealth if they are unable to purchase a home right now? Principal way in which people generate wealth or or get a high rate of return on their savings is through investments in financial instruments, stocks and bonds, mutual funds. Many people have access to that through their jobs. And so individual retirement accounts of various forms are a really important way of saving. You can put your money aside and you'll earn a, a decent rate of return from that. The rate of return on stocks and bonds over the long term has certainly been uh, higher than the rate of return on on home ownership. It's been quite a struggle for many people across the country over these last few years who are trying to buy a home because of the pandemic, rising interest rates, the low supply of new homes. But I'd like to ask you if you see any reason for optimism right now. Are there ways that the housing market is improving for people? If I were looking for reasons for optimism, I would say one is that we're probably at the darkest days now. We, we, well, the Fed has helped put the, the damper on house price growth. Interest rates should come down over the next two years. And so hopefully we'll be in a situation where we won't see house prices inflating at such a high level and interest rates will have moderated. The other reason for optimism, I would say, is that 
from a policy perspective, there's a lot of attention being paid to this issue right now. And I think that's leading policymakers and folks in the housing industry, and that includes lenders and realtors and builders who see uh, good reasons why we should be expanding home, home ownership opportunities are looking for ways to do that, looking for ways to provide new forms of credit and other supports to make home ownership accessible to people. That was Chris Herbert. He's Managing Director at the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Juana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The number of states that have legalized recreational use of cannabis more than doubled in the last five years. Now, a new study finds that between 2017 and 2021, there was a dramatic spike in the number of very young children eating edible forms of marijuana, with many of them ending up in hospitals. As NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, the findings have physicians and other health experts concerned. Back in 2019, Dr. Merritt Tweed, an emergency medicine doctor, was starting a fellowship at the Illinois Poison Control Center. The big buzz at that time was that cannabis was going to be legalized for recreational adult use January 1st, 2020. Now that Illinois was changing its law, she looked at studies from other states that had already legalized the drug. Some had found unintentional health impacts on kids. One study in Colorado documented a rise in the number of children accidentally consuming edible products. So Tweet wanted to know if this would also happen nationally as more states legalized the drug. And she was most concerned about kids five years and younger. This age group accounts for about 40% of all calls to poison centers nationally. And it's the age when children start to explore their surroundings. They can get into things and you can't really rationalize with them. Hey, you shouldn't get into this. This might be dangerous to you. They think it looks like candy and they want to eat it. So Tweet and her colleagues looked at information from the National Poison Data System. They found that back in 2017, there were just over 200 reported cases of accidental consumption of edibles by children in this age group. But in 2021, the number had shot up to more than 3,000. An increase of 1,375%. The vast majority of the kids had found the drug in their own home. While most kids suffered mild impacts, about one in five was hospitalized. Dr. Andrew Monty is an emergency medicine doctor at University of Colorado Hospital who wasn't involved in the new study. He says he and his colleagues see these cases in their emergency department. We do have these children come in several times per month. He urges that if parents suspect their child ate an edible, they should take the child to a doctor right away. There are some patients that actually have airway obstruction and need to be in the ICU or put on a ventilator. The new study, published in Pediatrics, found that a significant minority of kids were admitted to an ICU. Dr. Nora Volkov directs the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So it's not just the issue that there are more poisons of children consuming cannabis, but that those consumptions appear to be more serious. She says the findings raise the issue of how these edibles are packaged and marketed. If you've ever been curious, go to a dispensary or a store where they sell cannabis products, which, of course, me being a curious person, I've done. And the edibles are extremely appealing in terms of the packaging, the colors. So, she says, parents and caregivers should take note of the new study's findings. If they are going to be consuming edibles, it is their responsibility to ensure that those edibles are not at the reach of their children. 
Volkov suggests storing them in childproof containers or just putting them away in places where kids are less likely to find them. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, author George Saunders' Liberation Day Stories, a short story collection that explores everything from love affairs to actors who are forced to perform after a lobotomy. Checking sports this just in, it looks like Red Sox star Raphael Devers could be staying in Boston for a while. Multiple media reports this afternoon indicate the third baseman and the team are finalizing an 11-year deal with more than $330 million. It's more than $30 million a year. Yesterday, the team announced it reached a one-year deal with the two-time All-Star worth $17.5 million to avoid salary arbitration. For Red Sox fans who just can't wait until springtime, the annual Sox Winter Weekend will be held January 20th and 21st in venues across Springfield. Among the current and former players who are set to be there, Rafael Devers, Pedro Martinez, Big Poppy, Brian Bayo, Wade Boggs, and Jason Veritek. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.50. Why is it that this military, that the entire world thought was advanced, was huge, was deadly, was menacing. How were they unable to carry out the war plans that everybody envisioned, that the Russians envisioned, that the West envisioned? I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's a daunting task to be George Saunders' next book, to live up to the greatness that came before. But Liberation Day stands up to its predecessors. It is a short story collection that explores everything from misunderstandings to love affairs to lobotomized actors pinned to a wall and forced to perform all kinds of crazy stuff. George Saunders, welcome. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. Let's dive right in with that title story. Liberation Day, it's the longest story in the collection. I got to say it's the strangest. This is the um, dystopian one starring characters who have had their memories mysteriously removed. Explain what's going on and why you wanted to start there. Yeah, I had to laugh when you described it that way because I thought, oh, that sounds so dark. (laughs) It was kind of (laughs) dark. Yeah, it's dark. I don't know. It just was sort of a um, a flash onto the idea of uh, using a per- almost using a person like a stereo, like taking the person's innate verbal abilities and then doing something to them technologically to ramp that up. So they're much more articulate. They, they, uh, um, they have a certain sort of tone in their voice that makes you want to listen to them. And so then, you know, you're the person who produces that idea. And for a second, you go, just suppress that. That's too weird, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then if you're me, you say, well, yeah, it is weird. And you probably should suppress it. But what if, yeah. you know, you just abided with this thing for six or seven months to see if what started out as um, crazy could eventually be made to reach out to 
the reader. You know, since so many of the things that we go through in this life are inexplicable, is there any way I could take this crazy idea and through my attention and my, you know, even love, um, make it such that when Mary Louise reads it, it, it actually speaks to her in some way that surprises her. Yeah. That, that's the whole game, you know. Well, if that was the goal, you succeeded. Um, it did totally surprise me. Um, and I guess part of the process for you is it is it trying to figure out if this crazy voice has something to say, something that needs to be said that you can't say in any other way? Yes, that's the, that's the assumption. And then the first step is to say, well, who is this guy? Why is he talking so strangely? Who put him here? You know, and as you answer those questions, you're also doing the work of assuaging the reader's anxiety, because I'm, I'm sure you had the same kind of questions, you know, what what's going on here. So for me, it's kind of become uh, first try to fool myself or, or try to confuse myself. So I don't really know what the story means to be about. And I don't know what world we're in. Then over the months, as I figure it out, the assumption is that you, that's comforting to you too, as the eventual reader. And so in a sense, we're both in the project of trying to figure out the world. But I think the, um, the magic fictive experience is that process of reader and writer putting their heads together to discover something about their actual lives, maybe in the setting of a crazy dystopian story or, or, or an unlikely event. But it's that, it's that joining of consciousnesses. And, you know, the evidence of it is you're reading and you laugh or you're reading and you cringe and you, you know. Or you feel relief. I felt relief because I felt compressed into this strange dystopian world um, with the main character and narrator, narrator who was also very, very human, who I empathized with. But then it was such a relief um, to kind of come back to my daily life and look around and think, oh, you know, I, <laughs> not I don't, don't so have to into a wall with my memory. <laughs> no, I've, that's a beautiful thought. I've never heard that before. Relief. That's really nice. You know, and, and maybe even you feel, you know, some relief that the story wasn't just a piece of random nonsense that it actually came home. But I'll, I'll remember that. That's really useful. Thank you. Another story, Mother's Day. This flips between the perspective of two women who have loved the same man. Uh, it's very funny. It also totally broke my heart. I, I want to get you to read a part of it. Alma got hold of a fence slat to pull, pull herself out of this pain. Something new was happening now. The tightness in her chest was worse. Jesus, like labor with Polly. Then it went past that to labor with Pammy. And she was giving birth to something bigger than Pammy, out her chest. God, oh God. Pop is how she would have described it had she still been able to describe. Pop. A number of little beings came now. God, get back. You didn't know whether to pet him or kick him. As they gazed at her intently, she saw they were saying, Careful, girly, careful. Then their boss being came, a man, Paul Sr., looking so handsome. Did you finally wake up, dear, she said, and love the right person, the one who knew you longest and understood you best? Looking at him, she saw the answer was no, still no. So there is a lot going on here. She's obviously having a health issue. She's talking about uh, Polly Sr., her husband of many years, who's the husband who she has loved and, and another woman um, has loved as well. Yeah, it was kind of kind of a heartbra heartbreaking to write that because in the early parts of the story, she's kind of just a cranky old person, you know. And I think we have a little fun at her, you know, at her expense or, or in light of her grouchiness. And then by the end of writing that story, I just adored her and was, you know, trying to get her out of her mess, essentially, and couldn't quite figure out a way, but maybe did at the end. Are there some that you start out 
you work on it for days or weeks or months or whatever it is. And at the end, you think, well, that was a crazy idea. And I'm not sure it landed. So that's you know, a, a, a year ago, aside. I would have said no, because what, was, what tends to happen is I just say, well, I just don't, I just haven't opened up to it enough yet. I just have to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And I had one this year that was like that. That's a pretty good idea, I think. And I just couldn't, um, it's a little political. And so I think it's got, I've got my finger on the scale a bit because of my politics. Um, so that was the first, maybe in 10 years that I, that I haven't been able to finish yet. But generally the idea is you're, you know, your, your subconscious is posing you a, a challenge. And if you're patient enough, it will also give you the answer. And uh, it's a really interesting process that, you know, I've become more and more fascinated with. You, you, you'll hit a certain obstruction in a story. And it seems like often the, the key to getting past that is admitting that you're there, you know. And you, you can't say, oh, I'm a loser, I'm a terrible writer, I'm a bad person. You just say, the story is challenging me in a way I can't figure out. And then you try to articulate that. And often that's the, the key. I love that, though. It's such a good... Um... Such a good way of thinking about all kinds of challenges, isn't it? When it's writing, whether it's writing or anything else that, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> the temptation exactly. is to think I'm a lousy writer. I'm a loser. I can't do this. Um, but you're saying no, if you sit with it, then that it becomes the answer. That's yeah, exactly. And I challenge. Right. And so you're so often so much energy is spent on, you know, talking yourself down at that point or continue or considering bailing. I think in this time, especially, you know, where so much of our public discourse seems to be about having an authoritative position and just sticking there and disliking the people who don't have it and berating them and so on. Uh, fiction offers us another way in and basically says to us, you know, you have greater capacities for complexity and understanding and compassion than you might think. So reading a story and writing a story is a way of kind of uh, reminding ourselves of those, of those incredible capacities we have to understand further and to, to abide longer. George Saunders. His book, a collection of short stories called Liberation Day, was published in October. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republicans in the House of Representatives are in the majority and are in turmoil still. Kevin McCarthy has come up well short of being elected House Speaker in six rounds of voting stretching over two days as hardliners in the Republican caucus refuse to back him. It's Wednesday, January 4th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, an abortion pill that's only been available in person in certain clinics could become accessible at local drugstores and retail pharmacy chains and through telehealth. That story's ahead. Also, why women in India are dropping out of the workforce even as the economy is growing. And a powerful weather system's bringing heavy rain to much of California, including areas saturated from previous storms which means all the new rainwater is not going to sink in as well. It's going to run off. The major concerns, flooding, mudslides, and power outages. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House of Representatives is still without a speaker. Kevin McCarthy today once more failing to win the necessary votes to become House Speaker on a six-ballot. As NPR's Lexi Shapittle reports, the path forward is unclear and the process could drag on. McCarthy's 20 opponents within the Republican Party have thrown their support behind Florida Representative Byron Donalds. Donalds told reporters he wasn't looking to be speaker, but he supports the changes to House rules that McCarthy holdouts have been calling for. What I want as a Speaker of the House is going to actually be able to use every tool in this in this building to accomplish the will of the American people and, and have uh, trust in, and, and definite uh, belief that we're going to get that work done. Donalds did not say McCarthy should drop out of the race, but it's not clear how long McCarthy's support can withstand the stalemate. Lexi Shapittle, NPR News, the Capitol. The House has adjourned till 8 p.m. tonight Eastern and is expected to try again to move forward. President Biden gathered today with Republican and Democratic lawmakers at the site of an aging bridge that spans the Ohio River. NPR's Asma Holland reports the bridge is receiving funds from the big bipartisan infrastructure law. The bridge is a crucial artery between Kentucky and Ohio and two busy freight routes along I-75 and I-71. It's been neglected for years and promised to be fixed by plenty of politicians. Now the administration is allocating some $1.6 billion to fixing it. I believe it sends an important message, an important message to the entire country. We can work together. The money comes from the infrastructure law the president signed in late 2021. Biden specifically thanked the Republican leader in the Senate, Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, for his help, acknowledging the bill could not have happened without him. Asma Khalid, NPR News. San Francisco's largest private sector employer, Salesforce, plans to cut about 10 percent of its workforce and reduce real estate holdings. As Rachel Myro reports from KQED in San Francisco, the software giant says it hired too many people during the pandemic. The company employed about 80,000 people, roughly 11,000 in the San Francisco Bay Area alone. Salesforce nearly tripled its workforce in just the past four years, in large part through numerous acquisitions, including Slack in 2021. CEO Mark Benioff wrote to employees, as our revenue accelerated through the pandemic, we hired too many people leading into this economic downturn. In a regulatory filing, the company predicted the restructuring will be complete by the end of fiscal 2024. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Myro. The interest rate setting Federal Reserve is out with minutes from its meeting last month with officials agreeing the central bank needs to slow the aggressive pace of interest rate hikes as it seeks to push down inflation. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 133 points. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has made his final ceremonial walk of the, out of the Statehouse. The governor's so-called lone walk began at his office about an hour ago. He finally made it outside just after 5.40 after he was shaking hands with supporters and taking a lot of selfies along the way. WBUR's Steve Brown was there as the governor finally exited the Statehouse. So two DCR Rangers are opening up the front door of the Statehouse. There's Governor Charlie Baker and Lieutenant Governor Karen Valido standing in the doorway. They're about to stop out onto the granite steps of the State House and begin the walk down the steps down to Beacon Street to the, what's called the Oval. They'll get in the car and go home to Swampscott. The UMass band is here playing Stars and Stripes Forever. The State Police bagpipe and drum corps is here as well. They had performed a little bit earlier. The governor just took his wife's hand on one of the landings on the way down on the granite steps in front of the state house. And they will walk down. There's a crowd of people here waiting to see him, see her, as they leave the State House for the last time. That's WBRO Steve Brown. Technically, Charlie Baker will remain governor until tomorrow when Governor like Maura Healy is sworn in. WBR will have live coverage of her inauguration starting at 11 tomorrow morning. Earlier today, the 193rd session of the Massachusetts legislature was sworn in. I state your name. I Do solemnly swear. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. Congratulations and good luck. That is outgoing Governor Charlie Baker administering the oath of office to members of the state Senate this morning. Moments later, he did the same with the House chamber. Following the pomp and ceremony, the Senate again elected Ashland Democrat Karen Spilka as president. She said she plans to prioritize making community college free. The House re-elected Quincy Democrat Ron Mariano as its speaker for a second straight term. He says one of his priorities will be to find ways to support child care, the child care workforce. The man at the center of the nationwide college admissions cheating scandal has been sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison. Rick Singer appeared in Boston federal court this afternoon. Prosecutors had been seeking six years behind bars for Singer. For more than a decade, Singer took in $25 million in payments from wealthy parents and paid bribes to get their kids into some of the nation's most elite colleges and universities. In sports, it looks like Red Sox star Raphael Devers could be staying in Boston for a while. Multiple media reports this afternoon indicated the third baseman and the team are finalizing an 11-year deal worth more than $330 million. Yesterday, the team announced it had reached a one-year deal with a two-time All-Star worth $17.5 million. That was to avoid salary arbitration. In the forecast, this evening's drizzle turns to rain overnight tonight. Should dip a few degrees to about 40. Tomorrow, gray again, windy and wet, even chillier than today, falling to about the mid-30s by sunset. 43 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org.
It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A powerful storm is battering large swaths of California today. It's bringing heavy rains and high winds to some areas already saturated by multiple storms in recent weeks. The National Weather Service has sent out dire warnings that flooding, power outages, and mudslides are possible. NPR's Eric Westervelt is tracking the storm from the San Francisco Bay Area. And Eric, I've been looking at the Weather Service's satellite images of this huge storm, and they look really ominous. What's the latest? Yeah, this is a big storm, and, you know, the rain has started to hit parts of northern and southern California. But they're saying the worst of the storm, this massive band of moisture known as an atmospheric river, is going to get more intense later this evening and into Thursday morning. The Weather Service wanted tweeted out, you know, those asking, where's the storm? It's still coming. And they noted that these blue dots in the giant image uh, of the swirling storm you mentioned are, are lightning flashes. The governor's office today said the state's likely facing uh, the most challenging series of storms it's seen in the last five years. So, Juana, people are kind of holding their breath right now, hoping for the best as more intense rain and wind are starting to hit the state. And California Governor Gavin Newsom has already declared a preemptive state of emergency, and a few communities have also already ordered evacuations ahead of the storm. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, a handful of areas did that, including Watsonville in Santa Cruz County, south of San Francisco. The city issued some mandatory evacuations for areas of the city that are prone to flooding, that usually get flooding, and, you know, to try to get vulnerable residents, the elderly, to safety. They've opened up an evacuation center. Uh, and that's really because a similar weather system moved through the state over the New Year's holiday weekend, causing some dangerous flooding to both homes and businesses in some areas, including parts of San Francisco, Sacramento, and Watsonville. And one of the big fear really is that the ground is just, you know, oversaturated from all these storms. And this is the third since Christmas weekend. And this new one combined with strong winds could cause some serious damage. I talked with Allison Bridger. She's a meteorologist and climate scientist at San Jose State University. So it's a very strong storm, plus a juicy plume of moisture in the atmospheric river gives us the possibility of quite a lot of rain which means all the new rainwater is is not going to sink in as well. It's going to run off. And so you're going to have more localized flooding, not to mention trees coming down, mudslides. The good news, Juan, is cities have had a few days to prepare for this, have been handing out lots of sandbags, putting up barriers in places that flood, activating their emergency plans, and warning people, hey, stay off the roads uh, if you can, especially in these places that have seen some recent wildfires, and so they're more prone to mudslides and, and flooding. The irony, though, is that drought-parched California really needs rain, right? Yeah, desperately. I mean, the past three years have been the state's driest on record, and one storm won't get us out of the drought problem. Many of California's largest and most important reservoirs are still far below their historical averages. So I would say Californians are having a bit of a love-hate relationship with this storm. As one uh, meteorologist put it to me today, this rain is really, really good right up until the moment, you know, we're knee-deep in flood water. Another good thing I'll mention briefly, these storms have been incredible for the snowpack in California, which is a major source of both drinking and farming water. The snowpack in the Sierra Mountains is off to its best start in 40 years. Briefly before I let you go, Eric, I understand there are even more storms on the way in the coming days. Yeah, Saturday into Sunday, there's yet another storm coming. It does not look to be nearly as powerful as this one, Juana, but again, more rain in a saturated ground. The worry is, you know, storm after storm after storm is going to start to really uh, take a toll. NPR's Eric Westervelt in Berkeley, California. Eric, thanks and stay safe.
You're welcome. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade back in June, the Biden administration has been trying to protect access to abortion. Now, an abortion pill called Mifepristone could become easier to obtain. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to tell us more. Hey there, Sydney. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. So let's talk about what this pill is. This is not a new one. This has been around for a while, right? Right. Mifeprestone has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for more than two decades. It stops a hormone needed to maintain a pregnancy in the first trimester, and it's usually taken around 24 hours before a second pill, which causes the uterus to expel the pregnancy tissue. Doctors also use both pills during miscarriages to speed things along and minimize infection risk. Okay, so it's been around, but it has been hard to get in the past. How might access be about to get easier? Yeah, for years, um, it could only be dispensed in person by clinics certified to do so. So patients couldn't just get a prescription and fill it at the drugstore. They had to make an extra trip to take a pill in front of someone. And retail chains were specifically barred from dispensing it. And why? Why so many rules? So the short answer is safety. Drugs with certain safety issues have extra rules around them to control where they go. The long answer, if you ask some advocates, is politics. Medical societies have long said the restrictions weren't clinically necessary. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, for instance, says the drug is safe and effective and requiring it to be dispensed in person doesn't do anything to improve safety. It just adds hurdles. For what it's worth, the Food and Drug Administration suspended the in-person rule during most of the pandemic. So now, in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the agency is making more a more permanent rule change. Okay. So including, as we mentioned, dropping the in-person mm-hmm. requirement for accessing the pill. What else is changing? That's right. And now those big pharmacy chains aren't barred from carrying and filling prescriptions for mifepristone anymore. So it could be available at local drugstores and retail pharmacy chains, not to mention via telehealth going forward. The pharmacies would need to meet certain requirements and receive special certification before being allowed to fill those prescriptions. And to be clear, patients still need a prescription for these pills. They're not going to be available over the counter. Medical societies do say it's a step forward. So what does this mean practically? If I'm a patient, if I want to get this abortion pill, can I walk into my local CVS or Walgreens right away and get it? You can't uh, yet. So for starters, no one is required to carry these pills under the new rule. So they can choose not to seek the certification required to carry and fill these prescriptions. Uh, I reached out to CVS and Walgreens and both told me they were reviewing the new FDA changes. CVS told me it was looking at requirements in states that don't already restrict these drugs for medication abortion. Right. Well, speaking of states, I was wondering, Mm -hmm. because we now have quite a few states with laws on their books restricting abortion. So how does that Mm -hmm. come into play? So the Guttmacher Institute tracks state laws and policies surrounding abortion, including medication abortion. It says 29 states specifically require physicians to administer medication abortions, so not just any clinician. And 18 of those states effectively ban the pill's use in telemedicine by requiring the physician to be in the room when a patient takes this pill. Two states, Indiana and Texas, outright banned medication abortion after a certain point in pregnancy. So this doesn't make abortion accessible everywhere in the country, and it doesn't change things immediately. It will take time to see how it plays out. All right. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin, thank you. You bet.
Now that it's 2023, we are one year closer to a handful of important climate goals. 2030 is the deadline for the U.S. to cut its greenhouse gas emissions in half, and 2050 is the global deadline to get to zero emissions. But those deadlines can feel so distant. Most of us are focused on today, tomorrow, maybe next year. As part of our series, Finding Time, Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk has more. This human relationship to time, our focus on the present, is one reason that a lot of experts will tell you that climate change is a tricky problem. Anthony Lizowitz is the director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. I consider climate change the policy problem from hell because you almost couldn't design a worse fit for our underlying psychology or our institutions of decision making. 2030 or 2050, it's too far in the future. You and I aren't thinking that far out. And neither are most of our elected leaders. The president gets elected every four years, members of the Senate get elected every six years, and members of the House get elected every two years. So they tend to operate on a much shorter time cycle than this problem, climate change, which is unfolding over decades. But do not despair. This is a problem, yes. But it does not mean that humans or human societies are somehow incapable of reducing greenhouse gas emissions or protecting people from the effects of a hotter Earth. Jennifer Jaquette is an environmental scientist at New York University. We do all sorts of things that we're hardwired against. Scuba diving, sitting at desks, typing on computers, saving for retirement. We do all sorts of things that we weren't evolved to do. And why is it that we choose to focus on these evolutionary quirks for why we can't solve climate change? Jaquette and Lizowitz both say the key is to turn this weakness into a strength, reframe the future problem as a present one, and find solutions that aren't always obvious at first glance. For example, says Lizowitz, climate-driven disasters are getting more common. These are real, and these are affecting Americans all across the country in incredibly powerful and visceral ways. That is obviously bad. But it also brings climate change into the present. It makes it a right-now problem instead of a next-decade problem. And there are also ways to make the benefits of addressing climate change feel more immediate. Jaquette says some of the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act are good examples. If you will buy an electric car, we will give you a kickback. If you install solar panels on your house, we will make that profitable. They're trying to speed up the sort of benefits of cooperation. Because cooperation is the only way to really address climate change at scale. That means individual people doing things like driving electric cars, sure. But the big payoff will come from people who demand, right now, that the leaders of government and companies cut emissions. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a look back at athletic retailer East Bay. The company's catalogs used to feature the hottest new shoes and jerseys. And tonight on Marketplace, Google and Meta's share of U.S. digital advertising declined last year for the first time since 2014, as other platforms such as TikTok and streaming services gained market share. Marketplace starts at 630. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. The first gains of the new year on Wall Street. The Dow rose four-tenths of a percent, 133 points, to finish the session at 33,270. S&P grew by three-quarters of a percent to close at 38.53. The Nasdaq gained nearly that much, rising about seven-tenths of a percent to end the day at 10,459. It's 621. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, the first week of New Year should bring a whole lot of gray. Clouds press on overnight tonight. Should be foggy and rainy, right about 41 degrees. Windy tonight and tomorrow as well. Then tomorrow, overcast chillier than today, averaging about 40. Friday, cloudy and damp once again, staying about 40. Then skies may finally brighten for Saturday. In the Boston area, 43 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Now to India, which will soon overtake China as the world's most populous country. In recent decades, India has developed quickly. But as that's happened, women have not joined the workforce as much as they have in other countries. In fact, Indian women have been dropping out. And that has stumped some economists. From Mumbai, NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Growing up in a city that's home to the Bollywood film industry, Aditi Dulap dreamed of being an actor. She never thought of doing a nine-to-five office job. But then suddenly everything changed, that one incident in my life. That one incident 28 years ago was a train accident that killed her brother. Her father had a heart condition, and suddenly the family's financial security fell on Aditi, who was then just 21. So she got a job as a secretary at the German manufacturing company Siemens. That was a big deal back then, especially for a woman. Getting into Siemens is a big thing. The eyebrows of the person used to be, oh, Siemens, good, yeah. Aditi climbed the ranks, and about two decades later, she was an executive. She was living in a typical joint Indian family with her in-laws and kids when her father-in-law died. Suddenly, the role of caregiver fell on her, and she struggled. As a married woman, you know how it happens. We were not able to keep everybody happy. My mother, she was not supportive that time. My mother-in-law was not supportive. So So Aditi eventually joined the ranks of the millions of Indian women each year who put their professional lives on hold. Now you see girls and women either leaving the jobs early or even actually leaving their jobs totally. Economist Ritu Devan says part of the reason is prosperity. India is now a middle-income country, but lots of folks still have conservative ideas about a woman's role in the family. You know, you have the standard, oh, my wife does not need to work. And the woman says, I don't need to work because my husband can provide for me. I was reminded of that recently while interviewing rickshaw drivers in Mumbai about inflation. Things have gotten so bad, one driver told me, that his wife may actually have to get a job for the first time. For him, women's labor is an emergency stopgap measure, not something to rely on. 
Now, it's true that Aditi could quit her job at Siemens only because she's from a relatively well-off family with savings. But what's perplexing, says Cher Varick, an economist at the International Labour Organization, is that lower-income women are dropping out of the workforce too, in even greater numbers. Which indeed was a real puzzle over the last decade or so, particularly during the period when the Indian economy was growing fast. Statistics show fewer than one in five Indian women work, at least formally, though most work here is informal, agricultural or domestic labor that often isn't tracked. As Indians migrate to cities, they often don't have extended family around to help with childcare. Many women also have safety concerns about commuting. But Varick says there's an even bigger factor. And that's the lack of decent and productive employment that would be appropriate and accessible for women. Now, this is especially true for women who are unskilled, who live in rural areas, and who shoulder the bulk of childcare and household duties in families without high-tech appliances. In other words, a majority of women in India. In a noisy outdoor market of Mumbai, a gaggle of female neighbors commiserate about their employers. They all work as cleaners and cooks in other people's homes. It's sporadic and insecure, and weak labor laws don't help. None of us get decent wages or paid time off, says Sangeeta Devde, who is separated from her husband and trying to support their son. She says one of her employers recently replaced her with a younger man who doesn't have to juggle unpaid work at home like she does. So this is one of India's challenges as it overtakes China as the world's most populous country, not only to create jobs for all of its workers, but to create the conditions that will allow its female workers to take them. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai. East Bay has sent out its last catalog. The parent company of the sportswear retailer is reorganizing and shutting down the brand. But back in the 90s, East Bay mail order catalogs featured the hottest new athletic shoes and pro jerseys. And NPR's Gus Contreras, he was a child of the 90s. I used to spend hours and hours poring over the latest East Bay catalogs like a detective combing through mounds of evidence. I'd closely examine the newest sneakers worn by my favorite athletes like Ken Griffey Jr. and Deion Sanders. This is the shoe that Deion wears in the field. And now it's mine, all mine, and nobody can take it from me. Before widespread online shopping, East Bay was the place to check out the latest sneakers and sports apparel. East Bay was the first time that you could bring them all to your home, and it was... Champ Sports with all the jerseys, Foot Locker with all the shoes, and pretty much in about 100 pages, you could see all that right in front of you. That's Nick DePaula. He covers the sneaker industry for ESPN. He's also a 90s kid who was obsessed with East Bay. I always joke with people, and I literally was reading the sports page on East Bay with my cereal every morning. Never mind that neither of us had the money to afford those Nike sneakers or starter jackets. We both basically memorized those catalogs down to how much those shoes weighed in ounces. The level of detail that was kind of jam-packed into every page was pretty extensive. It was a great sort of immediate database uh, behind the guise of a selling catalog. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, when you're 10 or 12 years old, you don't, you don't think of it in that way. 
you might think of it more like a magazine. You know, when that East Bay magazine shows up, you start flipping through. And... You know, always was anxious to get the magazine and look through it. And uh, seeing East Bay magazines, you know, when they came out. And seeing... Baseball and basketball superstars Clayton Kershaw, Kevin Durant, and LeBron James certainly did when they were kids. At least that's what they said in East Bay promotional videos. East Bay, the company, was founded in 1980 by two guys selling running shoes out of a van in north central Wisconsin. It grew into a national mail order retailer and eventually was bought by Foot Locker in 1997. Most of the approximately 200 employees left at the company will be laid off by April, according to Foot Locker. East Bay itself pivoted to online sales a while ago, but the internet has changed how sneakers are marketed and sold. So here's the box, voila. Let me go ahead and take them out for y'all. Bam! Social media and apps can hype new shoe releases much quicker than a catalog can. And large shoe companies are increasingly selling direct to consumer without a retailer, which made it harder for brands like East Bay. But it's not hard to remember that their reach was once everywhere. Before Instagram, before message boards, and East Bay itself was pretty much the anchor point of sneaker culture, whether it's Jordan 11, Air Max 95, any Penny Hardaway shoe. You know, those models have been for now three decades sought after routinely, and there's a, a page on East Bay you could find for each one of those. ESPN's Nick DePaula thinks the catalog set him on a path to where he is with his career. And as I've worked on this story, I've realized that some of the styles that influence me to this day kind of comes from those catalogs too. Even if I never got a pair of the Deion Sanders Nike Air DT Max 96s from East Bay. Gus Contreras, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team.